This morning, we are talking vacation rentals. In particular, we're taking a look at the situation on the friendly Isle of Molokai. Uh, joining me this morning, HPR's Ku'uve Hirishi. She's been taking a look at this issue. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. That's right. Uh, Maui County Council about a week or so ago passed a bill, and that no one's really been hearing or talking much about it outside of Molokai, but it would place a zero cap on short-term rentals for the island of Molokai, meaning an essential ban and also uh, phasing out and or uh, eliminating the current 17 short-term rentals on the island. So uh, for short-term rental owners, this uh, has come as a surprise. You know, they went through the process. So back in 2012, short-term rentals became a legal process that they could go through and, you know, they've jumped through all the hoops and now a possible ban would essentially put them out of business. But in speaking uh, to those uh, residents on Molokai, in particular Mahina Poi Poi, a resident of Pukuo, she she sort of summarized the concerns that a lot of Molokai residents have with uh, the current short-term rentals. A major concern is that the majority of them are owned by non-residents, um, not even Hawaii state residents, and that they're primarily being operated as investment properties. You know, it takes up long-term housing potentially. It raises the land taxes. That is a major concern. The impacts to the quality of just the community and the feeling that we're used to having in our rural communities, which is knowing who your neighbors are, just being able to have that safe feeling, it was kind of removed. So 16 of those 17 permittees uh, do not live on Molokai. Wow. Um, and some, I'm not, I couldn't get a hard number from the uh, planning department, but uh, do not even live in state. And so the money, you know, and, and speaking to a property manager, Dana uh, Harris, so she uh, manages, I believe, four of the current uh, properties, uh, short-term rentals on Molokai. She expressed that for uh, many of these owners, they invested in Molokai and they love Molokai and they in the future may want to return. And in the meantime, because they can't live here full time because their jobs keep them elsewhere, uh, they want to you know, not lose any money and use it as a short term rental uh, opportunity. So, you know, just to get both sides uh, of the uh, game there, uh, Zeli Duvashel, you know, the high cost of living here in Hawaii, I think a lot of Uh, local families who have decided to use short-term rentals to make that extra income. Uh, This one uh, former Molokai resident, uh, Zeli Duvashel, who's actually uh, Mahina Poi Poi, who we just spoke to, her cousin, uh, she had a short-term rental. She had her home, her family home on Molokai, uses a short-term rental to sort of make that ends meet. And here's Duvashel. There's no way I I could have afforded to buy that house, you know what I mean? I just, I inherited it. So it's just been in, in our family for generations. And I was basically struggling to keep it and doing the vacation rental to keep it. But I came to the conclusion that I need to, I actually got to move to Maui to make a living. So I want to sell my house over there. It's now on the market. So she actually moved to, you know, to Maui uh, to get for, for better economic opportunities. Uh, but that sort of summarizes, you know, the push and pull of uh, short-term rentals, at least on uh, Molokai. Uh, but uh, in 2017, so about five years after the short-term rental rules went into effect um, on or, or were established, I should say, in Maui County, 
uh, caps were established in uh, several areas, mostly on Maui, but none on Molokai. So Molokai began this conversation about, you know, should we consider caps or should we not? And the Molokai Planning Commission, after hearing sort of uh, hours and hours of, of public testimony on Molokai, had come to the conclusion that a zero cap would be a recommendation that they would uh, put forth for Molokai. And so this county bill that's going through, Bill 22, that's going, I think, is on its way to the mayor's desk right now, uh, is sort of encapsulates that um, that uh, desire that the community has. And speaking to Councilwoman Keani Rollins-Fernandez, uh, who proposed the bill, uh, she we asked her why, you know, we've heard from short-term rental owners that this came as a surprise to them, and, and what's your response to that? Here's what she had to say. It shouldn't really have been a surprise since this has been something the committee has been discussing for, uh, for at least the past three to four years. STR permits were meant to be temporary. That's what you know. These types of special permits do is like it, it allows activities normally prohibited, and so it it's not a right. It's it's a privilege. Uh, Greg Mebel over at the Maui uh, Vacation Rentals Association, so uh, a group of folks that have tried to help uh, be the voice for uh, short-term rental owners, uh, has said that, you know, an outright ban, prohibition, some, it, it's it's hard to make it happen, right? It's not going to actually have, the, it may not have the effect that you want it to have. You could see a proliferation of lawsuits, uh, legal issues, also um the, maybe uh, some short-term rental owners will be tempted to to operate illegally because there's this outright ban. And so he's sort of talking about the dangers of going this way and, and going with the outright ban. There's no way for neighbors to have a say. There's no way to collect taxes. There's no way to ensure guest safety. So the idea of, of sort of turning back time and may just bring up some of those same problems that were in place when the original program was put into place to address those problems. Right now, uh, Mayor Michael Vectorino uh, has till Thursday, uh, March 5th, to sign and or veto the bill, uh, but we've heard over the weekend that Maui County is considering uh, taking testimony and hearing from the public on a possible countywide ban on short-term rentals. Interesting. Well, I, it, it's fascinating just to see how every county is dealing with it because I think Maui has been at the forefront. Uh, you know, uh, Honolulu's way behind and Honolulu has so many more, but it's just interesting to see what is Maui's experience because they've gone out to a third party to help with the enforcement um, mm-hmm. and, and they just, you know, they have steeper fines. And, and so, you know, what can Honolulu learn? What can uh, Hawaii uh, island learn, Kauai. Exactly. I think all counties are really struggling with what to do and best practices. Uh, the idea of bans uh, though, or a zero cap is something that we haven't heard from and, and seen um, yet here in Hawaii. So it will be uh, interesting to see how, how these things play out. You know, and, and it's uh, with the coronavirus, mm-hmm. the COVID-19, you know, uh, in the headlines, uh, you know, I was just wondering, you know, what do vacation rentals do you know because uh, hotels have a a certain a kind of protocol right. but you know you wonder about vacation rentals 
Right. I, I actually I, I haven't spoken to uh, anyone on, on that particular topic, but I think as uh, Poi Poi, the uh, Molokai resident, initially had said, that idea of not having that connection with the short-term rental owner or having a sort of day-to-day presence with them and not knowing who they are might be part of that, you know, the inability to have that conversation. What are your protocols for COVID-19 and things like that? Right, right. Certainly something to think about. But thanks so much, Kuvehi Rishi. We have been talking to HPR's Kuvehi Rishi about uh, vacation rentals on Motlaka'i. We will be talking with uh, Maui's planning director, and you'll hear more about that this week. Transparency, responsibility, accountability. Three words that perfectly describe HPR, and we can prove it. For eight years in a row, we've earned a four-star rating from Charity Navigator, an independent evaluator of nonprofits. This top rating puts us in the top 5% of those rated, and it lets you know that your donations will support a financially responsible and ethical organization. For more about Charity Navigator or to become a member, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. As test kits become more available and as more people test positive for COVID-19, we're hearing more about what to do and what not to do. Be prepared, but there are mixed messages. Use masks. Don't buy masks. We talked to Kaiser's chief of infectious disease, Dr. Carcolis, uh, last week about what Kaiser Permanente has been doing to prepare its staff and patients. He sets the stage explaining the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic. So an epidemic in general refers to uh, a sudden increase in the number of cases of a uh, given disease above what is normally seen. Um, outbreak and epidemic are, are largely um, largely the same in, in, in common parlance. A pandemic, um, on the other hand, usually refers to an epidemic that has spread over several countries or continents, um, affecting you know a lot, a lot larger numbers of people. I think um, it's a bit, you know, as, as Tony Fauci from the NIH pointed out um, recently, it's it's a bit of a semantic thing. Um, it's a bit of a squishy definition as to what constitutes a formal pandemic. The World Health Organization has their own definition, which um, requires not just multiple contents, multiple continents, but also um, uh, measures the, the degree of impact on those continents. Other people feel, hey, we've already sort of met the pandemic. Um, uh, sort of definition as uh, as things are right now. So I think it doesn't change too too much on the ground. But I think you know when you look broadly, we're certainly dealing with um, several countries, uh, many countries, an increasing number uh, affected with ongoing spread, and and um, and that's you know that's the situation we're in. Whether you call that multiple epidemics or a pandemic, um, you know, is a bit a bit of a semantic issue at this point. They just sound so scary, and you know, there's got to be some. I guess balance because you don't want to, you don't want people to be hysterical about something, but you do want them to be cognizant of, you know, what's at risk. Yes, no, I think that's very true, and and I think, you know, one thing about us as a um, a society or or maybe even as a species is that we tend to be very afraid of things that that we don't know much about, and lose perspective relative to things that that are very familiar to us, but which are quite dangerous. I mean, um, you know, we're in the middle of a very busy flu season. 
influenza has killed something like 16,000 people um, in the U.S. this year, just this flu season, and always kills somewhere between 20 and 60,000 people in any in any given year. And yet we don't, you know, there's not a lot of um, uproar in national press around flu, even though it's a, a far deadlier thing for this country currently than coronavirus. So. I do think that perspective is is um, is a hard thing to maintain, but I do think you know it's worth keeping in mind that we're not quite sure what we're dealing with yet, but we have the broad parameters of it and um, and how much of a challenge this will be for us to manage um, outside of a, a situation like China, which has a very different public health infrastructure and a very different level of, of um, acute care than we can provide here um, remains to be seen. But I think staying up at night worrying about it and and following the news um, with with a, a huge ton of concern is not really going to be super productive for any given individual. Let's just um, trust that things will be okay, and at the same time prepare adequately on an individual level and a, and a, and a healthcare level for whatever is going to be. You talk about the flu. So, how are we doing this flu season here in Hawaii? It's a really busy one. It's been quite uh, one of the busier ones in recent years we've seen here, certainly in the last several weeks. The Hawaii levels of flu have um, have climbed steadily. They've actually been above the the national average for the past several weeks, which is unusual. We tend to lag behind um, the mainland U.S., um, but but uh, in recent weeks we've actually come a little bit ahead of the U.S. in terms of the the number of influenza-like illnesses and and confirmed flus that we're dealing with per capita. So it's been busy. Our our um, hospital and Queens have taken a somewhat unusual step of now screening. Um, folks as they come through the door for temperature and flu-like symptoms. And again, that's really based on flu, not coronavirus, although it may help for that down the road. But um, but that's a, a reflection of the fact that we've certainly had um, a lot of flu-related illnesses in our members and, and actually a lot of doctors and nurses becoming quite ill with flu too. So we're trying to do our best to protect um, our staff and our members um, by, by limiting the number of visitors to our, to our facility right now. Do we have a sense on the numbers uh, of you know, people who have died here in Hawaii because of the flu this season? No, I don't think those are, um, those are usually tracked retrospectively, and it takes a while to accrue all those numbers um, for lots of different reasons. It's just, um, it's hard to, to attribute given deaths to flu um, uh, in real time. So um, so I don't have those numbers in front of me, and, and we usually find that out closer to the end of the season or even in the year following. So maybe, though, if there is one positive thing because of the concern about the uh, COVID-19, that maybe people who might have resisted getting the flu shot figured out, well, I better go get this if, if it's going to, you know, help me, you know, survive flu season just from the regular flu. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've certainly been encouraging folks to get flu shots um, really aggressively, um, as has, um, I think, really the Department of Health. And that's that's not because, by the way, the flu vaccine protects you against coronavirus. They're very different viruses structurally. Um, but because um, for your own health in a busy flu season, it's important, and certainly going forward, minimizing the amount of flu we have in the community as we're trying to sort out who may have flu, who may have coronavirus. Those, those two infections overlap a lot in their clinical presentation. Obviously, the less flu we have, the less confusing it is, and the better care we can provide as a you know as a healthcare organization. Now, I've uh, been battling, uh, you know, losing my voice this past week. And, you know, everybody's joking like, oh, gosh, don't give me the coronavirus. But, you know, because we don't know at this point, right? I, I mean, we don't have the test kits. Yes, uh, I think, um, you know, certainly as a state, but really as a country, we've been hobbled a lot um, in our capacity to really test appropriately for coronavirus um, uh, because of our uh, of the difficulties with getting a test kit that's functional, that's really um 
not something that's done at a local level. That the CDC has has really struggled to um, to have a test kit for us that that's very workable. There are um, many other countries that are testing far more aggressively than the U.S. I think the, uh, South Korea has done over 30,000 tests um, for flu. We've done, I think, less. Than, I mean, for for coronavirus, we've done less than 500 that I'm aware of in this country. Um, um, South Korea has been able to roll out um, drive-through clinics, which is pretty brilliant. Um, the U.K. is planning to do that as well. But we really can't move forward um, as a state or country until we have um, a more appropriate test kit um, availability and, and hopefully commercial lab availability um, for us to be able to, to test broad numbers of patients quickly and, and triage them effectively. So we're, we're certainly a little behind on that as a country, and, and I'm hoping we catch up soon. And it might be one thing to jump up and down and say we need those test kits, but if they're not you know, the right test kits to use, if they're defective in any way, it's kind of pointless to roll them out. Yes. No, I mean, I think, you know, um, to keep things in, in perspective, I think part of the the reason that um, that there's such tough controls around um, testing for infectious diseases in this country is that they really um, believe at a, at a state and public health and, and CDC level that, that the quality of the tests that we use have to be accurate if we're going to take care of people appropriately. So there's a lot of quality control that goes into designating a test as um, as ready for prime time, and, and um, that does slow us down, and, and hopefully it, it ensures for good quality when we finally have a kit that's usable. And we have heard uh, from the State Health Department, you know, saying that the CDC had certain guidelines about, you know, who gets tested, and we understand they've, you know, adjusted some of those guidelines, but the CDC says, be prepared, our, our risk is low still, but be prepared, but, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there that just don't really know what that means. Yeah, I mean, it's a super fluid situation, obviously, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I guess I would put this in perspective a little bit. This is the third you know, major outbreak since the turn of the century of this particular group of coronaviruses, what we call beta coronaviruses or, or group 2B coronaviruses. You know, the first was in 2003 when SARS emerged out of China. Um, the second was in, in 2012 with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, which emerged in Saudi Arabia. And this one, um, seven years later, which began in late 2019, is, is the third. And, and each of those um, has been very different, but these are three viruses that are really very closely related to one another. Um, we did learn a lot, luckily, from the first two, um, but what we're realizing with the current coronavirus is that it's much less deadly, certainly, than either SARS or MERS, like far, far less deadly. So on an individual level, that's great. Um, uh, however, from a you know from an overall healthcare um, standpoint, it's a little bit trickier because it becomes much more like the cold or the flu, and that it spreads easily. People um, uh, can spread the infection without without quite knowing um, that they have something that could be serious to others, and so it presents a, a lot bigger challenge. And it is harder to anticipate what's coming. I think. You know, those of us in the infectious disease community are, are actively planning for a lot of um, different possibilities. This could be something as mild as um, simply a bad cold or flu season. I think there's, there's, there's a real possibility of that. This could also be something in which we're dealing with a situation where a subset of the population, um, especially the elderly or those with um, immunocompromising conditions or, or other conditions affecting their heart and lungs, um, where, where a large segment of, of, of that population who's susceptible to this infection becomes quite ill and, and, and there's a challenge for, for the healthcare system as a whole in terms of caring for large numbers of people with bad pneumonia. And I think anywhere in between those is certainly possible as well. But 
we're actively, um, as an organization at Kaiser, and I know um, the Healthcare Association of Hawaii and, and the Department of Health at the branch are all preparing for um, any one of those possibilities with contingency plannings and triage planning that, that stem out from from um, uh, how things play out on the ground in the coming months. It is hard to anticipate, but I think, you know, I, I would want people to know that, that actively those of us who are in the thick of this thing are, are planning for um, any number of different scenarios, including ones that, quite, that might be quite mild, and that would be awesome if that's what it turns out to be. But if it's more severe than that, there's a lot of, um, of heavy planning going on um, for, for other eventualities as well. So w- what types of, I guess, questions are you getting from your members, you know, when, when they come into your clinics and your hospitals around this virus? Yeah, I think um, <laughs> many. Uh, we're getting a lot of travel-related questions, understandably. We do get a lot of questions as to sort of like what is our overall level of readiness as a, as a hospital and a, and a healthcare facility, and I think that those are more than fair, and I'm glad people are asking that. One of the good things, you know, just to address that up front, one of the good things that, that emerged from the Ebola um, epidemic in 2014 um, was that our, our hospital, Kaiser Hospital, was designated an Ebola assessment facility, and so we were um, actively preparing for the presence of, of Ebola on the island. And thank goodness that didn't happen, but we really realized in the process that we should maintain that same level of readiness for other emerging infectious diseases because it was inevitable that we deal with something like this. This is the nature um, of, the, uh, of the current world we live in where everything is so interconnected. And so we've been doing quarterly training um, for the last five years for emerging infections, and we've recently um, uh, focused those towards coronavirus. We had a large-scale drill yesterday in which we simulated a patient showing up to um, a Kaiser facility needing to be transported to the hospital, um, dealt in real time on the ground with sort of like what it's like to care for that patient, um, make sure their family members are safe, make sure that the um, other members in the in the clinic and the hospital are safe, make sure that the healthcare workers are well taken care of as they prepare for this. And we'll be doing a lot more of that going forward because I think there's nothing like drills to really get you in the right mindset for caring for folks. We're doing a lot of stuff in terms of supply management, which is really important. It sounds kind of boring, but you really have to know um, in gory detail how many, not just face masks and face shields you have, but um, antibiotics. Antibiotics are, uh, China is a major supplier of antibiotics for the world. And we um, very early on made sure that we have a large supply of antibiotics on hand, not so much for coronavirus, but just um, in case there's disruptions in the supply chain. And then, you know, we're doing a lot of work with the state um, at the branch as well as um, the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. And we're tied into national partners within Kaiser. We're lucky to be part of an organization that's quite tied into the California experience where a lot of the, um, a lot of our uh, Kaiser colleagues, they are helping the state of California and, and the federal government in caring for the many patients with, um, you know, with COVID and, uh, in California. We're learning a lot from them on the ground. So, um, so there's a lot going on kind of quietly behind the scenes and a lot of active planning that, that I think should be reassuring to folks because, um, yes, it's a fluid situation, but there's a lot of, a lot of bright minds on top of it. Well, I, I know as we see the headlines, you know, uh, there's a lot of focus on the, on the number of confirm cases. But mm-hmm. I'm almost wondering if, you know, we should maybe not look at that so much and look at more at the fatality rate. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to just put out there is that, um, you know, having infections in general, infectious diseases in general, outbreaks in general, early on, we tend to, to overestimate the mortality rate significantly. And that's because um, the testing capacity is not up to speed, as is certainly the case now. And because many mild cases, therefore, go undetected. So, 
the denominator, as it were, is actually a lot larger than we than we're generally seeing. That's certainly the case if you look in China, where um, the healthcare facilities are quite overwhelmed, as is their testing capacity. So many people are simply not getting tested, or they're just recovering at home, or they they give up waiting in the emergency room and they go home simply to recover at home. And so the number of actual infections out there seems lower than it is, but you obviously count the fatalities so that the, the fatality rate looks much higher. We're obviously in the process of really trying to get a good sense from the China experience. There was an excellent paper published um, in mid-February that looked at the first 72,000 cases. Um, this is published in the Chinese Epidemiology Journal and, and co-sponsored by the CDC out there. So it's, it's good data. And it really showed very clearly that about 80% of infections, and again, this is probably an underestimate, but at least 80% of infections with coronavirus are quite mild. Um, folks that don't really need much health care, if any at all. Um, and that really the groups we need to be most concerned about helping with this infection, should they, should they get it, um, are those who are elderly, especially those who are over 80, but certainly um, uh, in an age-dependent fashion. This virus, as was the case, by the way, with both SARS and MERS, related coronaviruses from, from prior years. Those were also um, very age-dependent infections. If you're young and healthy, certainly if you're younger than 40, um, uh, this virus likely poses a minimal threat to your health. But if you're older, if you're older than 60, 65, 70, um, or if you have significant heart or lung disease, those are the folks that, that we're going to need to be really concerned about with this infection. And so um, we're learning a lot from the Chinese experience. And, and yes, I agree that, um, that focusing um, on fatality rate at this point is only minimally useful because the data are very incomplete. It's often only after epidemics are sort of on their, in their waning phases and we're starting to collect blood from people who may not even have had symptoms that we get a much more accurate case count of what we're dealing with and a much better estimate of how deadly things are. But at least we know the group that we'll need to be focusing on to help them um, stay healthy in the future. What do you say to people who are you know, watching TV, reading the newspaper, yeah. reading uh, articles online, and they're just confused by the messages? Yeah, it's tough. I, I do mean, I, I guess I push a couple of, of points. Um, one is the issue of trying to maintain perspective, as we talked about, and, and put this in the context of other things that we deal with regularly, like flu. Um, this, this, in its heart of hearts, this virus may turn out to be some variant of a very bad cold or flu virus that's particularly harsh on the elderly. And that just may be what this is. And worrying about it overly is not going to change the outcome of things. We talked about the flu shot, which I think is important. I do talk to people and my patients in some, in some detail about maintaining their own health in a general sense. I mean, I think, um, you know, if nothing else, washing your hands as often as possible. Um, by the way, hand washing is probably more effective than alcohol, um, gels, etc. Um, is a good habit to get into in general, but especially during respiratory seasons, whether or not coronavirus is circulating. There's a lot of things that affect our immune system that we sort of take for granted. Sleeping well, eating well, watching your stress levels, maintaining your social relationships. These are actually really important and um, and and really can help protect you um, from any number of different infections. Um, and that's really important to keep in mind. The state has recently emphasized um, the importance of um, the emergency preparedness kits that we're all supposed to have for, you know, for hurricane season um, of keeping those in hand for, for coronavirus and making sure that you have food and medical supplies and extra um, chronic medicines on hand. And that's not because, by the way, that the state expects things to shut down and for people not to be able to um, to get the services they need. But in general, there are probably going to be 
a good subset of people, it's just strikes in a major way in the community who are going to need to stay at home and, and probably recover at home and, and try to limit their exposure to others to keep others safe. And so for that reason, having some some degree of emergency preparedness, I think, is a great idea living on an island anyhow. But certainly in this setting, I think that's probably prudent for, for the general health. I'm just curious. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. what got you into the infectious disease area, but, you know, when you come across something like this and everybody kind of springs into action, I guess, you know, you know what are you thinking? Well, this is what we signed up for, right? This is why I like the field. I mean, there's, there's always something new and different in infectious diseases. Every few years, something comes flying out of the forest or the, you know, seafood market or what have you and, and catches us by surprise as a as a uh, as a specialty and that's super cool it's neat to be um to be constantly learning and having to react and think on your feet and it's um you know people often ask like wow is that scary you know we deal with flesh-eating bacteria and tuberculosis and all these other things and um i feel like it's an incredible blessing to do what we do it's really um neat to be challenged at work and um and trying to help folks i mean the vast majority of what i deal with with infectious diseases, you know, I can fix, which is awesome. Most of the people I take care of, um, I can help get better. And that's not always the case in every medical specialty. And so it's super gratifying. Um, so frankly, you know, I'm tired, but I love it. Uh, okay. Lucky. Was, was there an infectious disease that just got you like, you know, into pursuing this? You know, no, it was really that at the places that, that I, that I did most of my training, um, uh, at Cornell, um, medical school and in university of Pennsylvania, for residency, those were two um, hotbeds for really great infectious disease docs. And so a lot of my heroes, when I was a medical student and resident, were all in this field. I thought they were the coolest, brightest guys in the room, and, and they seemed to really enjoy what they did. And there was a big international flavor to the work that they did, which appealed to me. I'm, uh, I'm a first-generation American, and um, both my parents are, are from, from uh, other parts of the world, and, and I like that international part to it. So, um, no, it was just that, that the best docs I knew um, were in this field, and, and I really admired them, so I wanted to be like that. And that was Dr. Tarkin Collis, Chief of Infectious Disease at Kaiser Permanente Hawaii. Support for The Conversation comes from Matson, specializing in Pacific Ocean shipping, celebrating 138 years serving businesses and communities across the Hawaiian Islands. Matson.com. Hey, if you like songs about coral reefs, motorcycles, mouses, magic pennies, pizzas, and whales, have I got a show for you. Join me, Uncle Wayne, and my howling dog band for a family-friendly concert at HPR's Atherton Studio. Saturday, March 14th at 9.30 a.m. Space is limited, so reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by the Cole Academy Child Development Centers. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about the City Ethics Commission and how it scrubbed information that you used to be able to get free and online. That is the subject of our reality check today. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. You know, I have to say, when I read this, my eyes almost popped out of my head. I was like, what? 
Yeah, so the Honolulu Ethics Commission used to have a couple years worth of forms. It was, I think, for 2015 and 2016, you could see uh, the financial disclosure forms for the mayor, his cabinet, and for council. So those are the records where officials disclose their business interests, their real estate holdings, and their family ties. So you can keep an eye out for any conflicts of interest in their public work. Um, so those forms have been taken off the website, and they're not posting new ones anymore. So you have to go to the city clerk's office in person during business hours if you want to check those out. So it's a bit more difficult now. So when did the change take place? It's a little hard to tell. Um, so I think it happened in the last six months or so because I remember seeing it last summer. Um, but sometime in there, they've disappeared. Um, I did ask the Ethics Commission Director, Jan Yamane, about this, um, and she didn't want to discuss the, the issue by phone, but she just said, you know, the city clerk is the custodian of the record, um, and so people should go there, and she said there's not much else to add. So what's the reaction from the community about this? Because so, they learn yeah, about it. Government accountability advocates are kind of troubled by this. Uh, Common Cause Hawaii is one of them. Uh, their executive director, Sandy Ma, said this is extraordinarily troubling. She said, you know, this is how the public keeps tabs on our elected officials to, to keep an eye out for conflicts. And having it online makes it easier for people to, to do that. So um, she's hoping they, they put it back online. Um, Brian Black with the Civil Beat Law Center for the Public Interest feels the same way. The State Ethics Commission, he said, puts these forms online easily accessible to folks. So he, he called it shockingly regressive that the city would kind of go in the opposite direction. So I was actually surprised because in your story you mentioned that um, in addition to going down there to look at the records, that they're actually going to charge you if you take a picture of it with your cell phone? That's right. That was the new one. I did go to the city clerk's office last week um, to, you know, check the forms out myself. And they said, oh, yeah, we can pull them out for you. But, you know, if you want to scan them on your phone or take a photo, we're going to have to charge you a copying fee, which is usually what they charge me if I want, you know, a paper copy of something. Um, and the law allows for that because it does incur a cost for the city. Um, but we're working with the city law department to sort that out, hopefully get the records for free and make them available to folks for free on civilbeat.org. Yeah, I mean, that the, that's, that was a shocker for me because, I mean, you can go to state courts and uh, take pictures of, uh, you know, lawsuits. You can, uh, right. think, even on the State Ethics Commission website, I think that's just something you can do. Right, free copies. There's nothing in the public records law here that allows agencies to charge um, for taking pictures on your phone. I asked them to cite the law on that, and they, they didn't come up with anything. So hopefully we'll, we'll get that sorted out and um, make these, you know, important documents available for people. Yeah, and I think just to find out, you know, when did this change take place and uh, what was the reasoning? And then it, who do you complain to? I'm not sure. Do you complain to the Ethics Commission? Do you play, complain to the Corp Council? Yeah, it's kind of unclear. Um, you know, the forms say City Ethics Commission on them, but the Ethics Commission is claiming it's the clerk's office's job to maintain these, and whether the clerk puts it online or not, the Ethics Commission seems to be indicating it's not, you know, up to them. It's not their job. Um, so either way, hopefully we'll get them on civilbeat.org um, soon. We do have a couple years' worth online for city and state officials, but we're working to get it updated. All right. Uh, well, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, that was re reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
America, are we ready? A third of all delegates are up for grabs on Super Tuesday. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me and listeners from around the country for a national call-in special on the day that could determine whether any candidate can get a majority before the convention. The time to listen and participate is now. Call in with your thoughts on the candidates and the state of our country. America, are we ready? Tuesday afternoon at 2. A recent survey released by the U.S. Department of Labor indicates Hawaii leads the nation in union membership. Statistics show union members make up 23.5 percent of wage and salary workers, which is up slightly from the previous year. So what does that say about the power of the unions in Hawaii? Well, last month, union workers showed up en masse for a Labor of Love event. Hundreds of AFL-CIO members descended on Kalihi Elementary to show some muscle, installing fans, air conditioners, and even a dishwasher. The Kalihi School is tucked away back in the valley, and members of the public unions and construction trades knocked off thousands of dollars worth of repairs on a construction wish list totaling millions. Here's Randy Pereira, head of the Hawaii Government Employees Association, the largest public sector union. There is so much need within the public school system for repair and maintenance. Uh, We chose schools annually based on the percentage of kids who are on subsidized or free lunch program and we use that as a gauge for financial need in that community. It's not perfect, we realize, uh, but there's no other means that we thought that we could use to to pick schools that really have a, a lack of resources to try to bring the school and the community up to a level that the community and the students are proud to participate in. So this year it's Kalihi Elementary and we're very fortunate through the generosity of a number of local unions and businesses, including the Hawaii Community Foundation, to provide a little over $130,000 in actual equipment, supplies, and people power to paint. We're installing air conditioners, we're installing fans, we're installing a dishwasher that was uh, through the big contribution by the Community Foundation, a dishwasher that will now allow the school to get away from single-use plastics. We've purchased some plates and uh, silverware, what have you, so that the students have uh, that to use instead of the plastic spoons and forks. And, and you know, just doing our part. Yeah, I had to chuckle when I heard that on stage because I remember metal trays and metal utensils when I was in, in of grade course. school. No, of course, but in today's world, certainly, we're just trying to do our part to create a more sustainable situation here at the school and and avoid. And of course, it'll save them money over time because they won't have to buy the paper plates in in as bulk as as much as they did in the past. So we're just trying to do our part. We are talking about trying to expand. Uh, We are looking at the, the possibility of being able to do more schools in a year. But ultimately, we are reliant upon the generosity of a number of unions, and in particular, uh, those of the AFL-CIO, to provide financial resources that makes a day like today possible. Now, you folks were on the neighbor islands the previous year. Last year, we were at the Chief Escapulani School in Hilo, and we did about $80,000 worth of work there. Uh, We did things including uh, putting up new basketball rims on the playground. We did a lot of painting, a lot of refurbishing, and we also bought, at the school's request, we bought bulletin boards that that they were in need of and installed them. In every case, what we do is once a school is identified 
we've approached the, the DOE and the school and it's approved, we asked the principal for a wish list. And in this case, uh, Principal Will Grindell gave us a wish list. Poor guy's got a hell of a long list, but we pitched in to do what we can. Obviously, some things we can't do, but uh, we're trying our best. You folks have been doing this now for what, six years? Six years So now. where did you go before Hilo? We've been to, we started off at Waimanalo Elementary. We have gone to a school on Maui. Uh, we did also go to YNIL. We try to get around and spread the wealth, so to speak. And next year, we're looking to go back to Maui. The biggest challenge, uh, we're hoping to get to Kauai, but the biggest challenge that we're facing really is logistical in terms of supplies and being able to get equipment. So for example, on the Big Island last year, we had to coordinate bringing in a backhoe and other equipment, other heavy equipment to do the work on the basketball court. It took a lot of coordination and of course, logistically you know, on the Big Island, distance and time and everything costs money. So uh, this time around here, we're very fortunate where we have over 160 painters. So you don't get amateur slobs like me trying to paint the school and leaving holidays. We've got real guys painting and that's, that's the biggest thrust, I think, of the, of the work here today, along with some of the uh, appliance installation that we're doing. So we're very fortunate today to get uh, apprentices from the District Council 50, the Painters Union. It's a huge challenge for the building trades and skilled trades here in Hawaii to attract and retain some of our kids. Our kids grew up in a different era and more of them are tech savvy today than vocational oriented. So it's difficult to attract people to become plumbers and electricians. But we're very happy that, that we're able to draw a lot of them today because this goes toward their training and goes toward their certification as painters so that we hope with fingers crossed that they'll stick with the profession because we sorely need them. And Kalihi Elementary uh, Principal William Grindell tells us the extreme makeover was to be a surprise to the student body, and he couldn't wait to see their faces as they showed up the following week. Yeah, it's just amazing what the people were able to do for our school, what the uh, labor unions organizations have done. So we asked for a couple different projects. One project is to paint our school blue and white. Our school colors are blue and white, and when you walk on our campus, the school is brown and white. And when our kids sing the school song, our alma mater, we sing about blue and white and how it's our color and what it represents to the school. So by painting the school, our true school colors, blue and white, it's just gonna bring that pride to the students when they walk on campus that this is their school, this is Kalihi Elementary School. And then you also mentioned you've got a logo that you're, you're painting. Yes, so when you come up to Kalihi Elementary School, you come up a steep driveway. And what we are doing is right at the top of the driveway, we're gonna have a large sign that says Kalihi Elementary school and it's going to have our school's vision and mission right there so when the students walk in when the community walks in when parents walk in they will see that vision and mission right there on the walls and know what we stand for know what Kalihi Elementary is all about and I shared with uh, the group here today our vision um, the first part of it is to strengthen our community and that's exactly what's happening here today the community has come out to strengthen our school community and that's just so so great for our, our school community I did go through the DOE list, the repair and maintenance list, and Kalihi Elementary has several million dollars. I mean, we're talking big ticket, you know, 600,000, 250,000. You've got big projects. Yes, we do. Um, it's, a, it's a great school, and we do have projects, and, and events like this help us take some of those things off the, the list. 
And then the, the green factor? The green factor, yes. So today we are getting a dishwasher installed in our cafeteria. And what is so great about that is we serve 200 breakfast, 200 lunch every single day to our students. And they're using plastic, plastic utensils. So come next week when the students arrive at school, we're going to have metal utensils that will be washed and reused for every meal service. So there are no longer 400 forks and spoons going into our landfills on a daily basis from Kalihi Elementary School. And, you know, we were excited to get the children's reaction and went back for the school assembly, which was packed with surprises, including a larger-than-life ram, the school's beloved mascot. The highlight of the morning, the students singing the school anthem, hailing the school colors, blue and white. Take a listen. can listen to everything I need for the day, from the news to the music to good stories. And it's 24-7, 365. I think probably Derek uh, in his morning edition is one of my favorites. And of course, I love Kanakapila on Sunday afternoons. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Four and a half million Americans are on probation or parole, and that's more than twice the nation's jail population. On the next Fresh Air, Jason Hardy talks about his four years as a parole officer in New Orleans, where he struggled to help the 200 people in his caseload. Sometimes, he found, a trip back to jail was the compassionate choice. His book is The Second Chance Club. Join us. This afternoon at 3, following On Point. That wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we continue looking at the state of short-term vacation rentals. We go to Kauai County next. We'd like to hear from you. Have a story about vacation rentals on your island. Is it helping you remain in your home or changing your neighborhood? You can call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.